We're going to dig into the book of James, and I'm actually really excited about this. I hope you are too. Uh, James is one of my favorite writings in the New Testament, and it's for this reason. James is the antidote to hypocrisy. That's what James for me is all about. James is the antidote to hypocrisy. I think hypocrisy is one of the, the greatest challenges in the church, at least in terms of how the world views the church as a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> and so I think James is very important for us as individual followers of Jesus, but also as the church to overcome hypocrisy. Because James says crazy things, things like this. You believe in God? Good for you. So do the demons. Don't you love it? <laughs> James is challenging. He wants us to keep it real. He wants to make sure that, that our faith isn't just some theoretical knowledge that we carry around in our heads, but that our faith is actually practical. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's being lived out in practical ways. Or he says things like this, faith without actions is dead. Dead. I mean, that seems very contrary to what Paul has been saying with Abraham and, and faith being the sole means of salvation. All of a sudden, James shakes things up by saying, you say you have faith? Show me your works. Show me it's alive. Because it's, if it's not living, if it's not working itself out in practical ways, then it's dead. Don't rely on that. It's challenging, isn't it? When James comes to talk about religion, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about prayers and worship services. There's a bit of that. But listen to what he says about religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. That's religion for James. It's practical. It's meeting the need. It's taking care of the vulnerable. It's doing like Pat Lagore just challenged us to do, to take care of those who have been placed right in front of us. We can't care for everyone, I know that, but there's people that have been placed right in front of us, and our religious duty is to extend care to the vulnerable. I could go on. Here's one thing that maybe is familiar to you in James, and we could go verse after verse, go home and read it today, read it all week long, read it all month long, but here's an important verse. Don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. In other words, don't be just hearers of the Word. That's the old translation. Be doers as well. Put your faith to action. And if there's no actions that relate to your faith, then question your faith. It might be dead. That's a challenge for us. And I think that's why it's the antidote to hypocrisy. It, it shakes us up. It makes us realize that our faith has to be worked out in real time, in real world situations. Our actions reveal our true beliefs. And that's what James challenges us to. So, with all that goodness and all that excitement and all that challenge in James, it might be a surprise to you to realize that James almost didn't make it into the Bible. We're going to talk about this a bit more on Wednesday night, 
So there's a little plug if you want to find out why. James didn't quite make it into the Bible, but there is a lot of controversy around James and whether or not he should be included. There's a lot of debate. People weren't quite sure if he was uh, contradicting what Paul and some of the other apostles were saying. And even after it was included, uh, characters like Martin Luther, the great reformer, he really didn't like this book. He actually puts it at the back of the Lutheran Bibles. That's a bit of a slam on James. And he did so because he called it an epistle of straw. That's what Luther called this uh, letter of James. Because it focused so much on our actions. And Luther's big thing was you are saved by faith alone. But it's not really a contradiction. And I think we see that as we go on and we, as we go through James. James writes about outward serving faith while Paul often writes about inward saving faith. That's maybe a good distinction to keep with us. That James writes with his outward serving faith, while Paul writes with his inward saving faith, and they're not in competition with one another. We show our inward saving faith by serving others. And that's what James is all about. So James, actually his name is Jacob, by the way. Um, that's another thing we can discuss Wednesday night, if you like. Uh, right in the Greek, even, Jacobus, his, his name is actually Jacob. But uh, we prefer James, and we're familiar with James, so I'll keep calling him James, even though it's the letter of Jacob. But that's okay. We'll get into that another time. But James, as best as we know, was actually the brother of Jesus. And there's a lot of different James kicking around in the New Testament. We find at least two who are counted as the disciples or apostles of Jesus, and uh, so it's a little confusing at times who actually did what and wrote what because sometimes we're just given the name James or Jacob. Um, it's kind of like when I grew up in school. Um, in my class, there was always at least one other Scott. Sometimes there was like three other Scots. It was just like, find some new names, people. But anyway, we had to designate the different Scots. So Scott Anderson was Scott A, Scott Bonner was Scott B, and I was just Scott. Why wasn't I Scott S? I never was. I was just plain Scott. And so there's lots of different uh, Jameses in the New Testament. And so within the disciples of Jesus, we have James the Lesser, and we have James the son of Alphaeus. But we also have James, who's known as the brother of our Lord. Now think about that for a minute, because this is where it gets really kind of interesting. Jesus had siblings. You ever thought about that? I mean, technically, we could say half-brothers and sisters. But he, had, he grew up in a family. I wonder if we sometimes forget that. I wonder what that would have been like. I don't think you could ever blame Jesus for anything. He just couldn't take the blame. Like, who, who left the toilet seat up again? Well, you couldn't blame Jesus. Like, it would be very difficult, I think, growing up in the household with Jesus as your brother. But that really did happen. And Matthew chapter 13 makes it really clear. When Jesus goes back and he's teaching in the synagogue and some of the local boys come around and see him, they're like, wait a minute, we know this guy. This is Jesus, isn't it? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? A different Judas, not the one that betrayed him. And aren't his sisters all with us? We know this guy, but Matthew affirms that Jesus grew up in a family setting and he grew up with siblings. And so this is very interesting to me. The interesting part is this. 
those siblings weren't always his biggest fans. They simply weren't. In John chapter 7, we read this. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then he adds, For even his own brothers did not believe him. How interesting. Even his own brother. I don't know if it's just that familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, that Jesus even says a prophet is, is not without honor, except in his own country, with those he's most familiar with. And that seems to be the case of Jesus within his family unit. But then, when we come to Acts of the Apostles, James, the brother of our Lord, is known as the leader of the Jerusalem church. So what happened? What happened to James, who didn't even believe in Jesus, <laughs> to James, the brother of our Lord, who is the leader in the Jerusalem church. What happened? What changed? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes an interesting note. He's talking about all the different people who have seen Jesus post-resurrection. These are all credible witnesses to the resurrection. He says this, After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you want their addresses, if you want their email, let me know, and you can, you can ask them. They were there. They're still around. They're still alive. And then Paul goes on to say, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So we sense that this is James, the brother of Jesus, because that's the James that Paul knew in Acts. That's also a James that's separate from the apostles in that sense. And it's very interesting that Paul points out, then he appeared to James. It's like Jesus made a special visit to his brother, James. And it changes everything. Because by the time we get to this letter, how does James identify himself? He doesn't identify himself as James the skeptic of Jesus. He doesn't identify himself even as James the brother of Jesus. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's now a servant to his brother, a servant of Jesus. The story here reminds us of the story in the Old Testament of Joseph, of Joseph who was obviously ordained by God to save the whole nation and through the nation save the world, and yet his own brothers didn't appreciate who he was, right? And so we see this also in Jesus. And then there comes a time when his identity is truly known. So James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is how we start uh, this letter. And it's important to know who we're talking about as best as we understand that. And so James then is writing to the Jewish believers in Christ who have been scattered because of persecution. This is called the diaspora, the ones that have been scattered out. Right during Pentecost, a lot of the Jewish people from all over the, the sort of the area around the Mediterranean at the time, they came together to celebrate. And then the Spirit came at Pentecost. And then they stayed together because they were celebrating the new life in the Spirit of God. But then persecution came and what happened? They were scattered. They were scattered. And that scattering is so important to the reason why you are sitting here today. <laughs> 
why we know Jesus, because that scattering throughout all of that Mediterranean world and beyond was the way that Paul and some of the other apostles spread the gospel, because they found these small clusters of those who had been at Pentecost, of those Jewish believers, and they began to train them and form them into witnessing and worshiping communities. And so that's who he's writing to, to these Jewish believers in Christ who had been scattered because of persecution. And then James shares all the wisdom he has. This is a wisdom book. Kind of like, think of James, kind of like you think of some of the Old Testament wisdom books like Proverbs even. And so it's hard to get a real clean structure for James as we go through it, because a lot of it is a collection of sayings, a collection of wisdom, very much in the Jewish tradition. But it's a collection of wisdom that's meant to help our faith work. So he starts in a good place. He starts with trials. Trials, difficulties, hardships. This is where James starts. Anybody facing some trials these days? Anybody facing some hardships? Anybody facing something that's been happening in their life that was unexpected or that just seems to never let go, that's just wearing us down? This is a good place for us to start too because James has some wisdom in how faith works in times of trials. And that's what he wants to talk about. What kinds of trials is James talking about? Well, he says right there, all kinds. <laughs> all kinds of trials. It's a, it's a licorice all sorts bag of trials. It's all kinds of trials. It's physical trials and emotional trials and spiritual trials. It's trials that will test your patience with humanity and test your faith in God. Trials. I think James is primarily talking about persecution as a trial because that was probably the dominant uh, trial that the believers in Jesus were facing as they began to follow Jesus in the world. But he's also expanding it to all kinds of trials. That's what James is inviting us to consider. Trials that test our patience with one another and test our faith in God. So there's three things that I'd like us to see about trials from James but also from the consistent witness that comes through the New Testament. The first thing is this. They are common. I know this won't be rocket science. This will be something you know. Trials are common. We're told to expect them. When James talks about trials, he doesn't say, if you face trials of various kinds. No, he says when. It's a given. We're all going to face it. We're probably in it right now. And these are common things. The New Testament says we should not be surprised when we face trials in this world. Jesus even said in John chapter 16, in this world you will have what? Trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. But in this world you're going to have trouble. Trouble because you're following me, that's a big part of it. But trouble just because you're caught in the, the brokenness of humanity our physical brokenness, our emotional and relational brokenness. We're caught in these things, and so we are going to face trouble. Expect it. But also know this, that you are sharing that trouble with people around the world. It's common also in that sense, that these are shared, common-to-humanity situations. I think sometimes when we face a particular challenge or a particular trial, the temptation or the difficulty is we can just ask the question, why me? Why me? I was talking to my brother Eric the other day, 
And uh, he's, he's faced a lot of trials in his life, I think more than the rest of us. And he just said to me, and this isn't a slam on my brother Eric, he just said, maybe some of you can take a turn for a time. Because sometimes when we face trials and we face multiple trials, we just <laughs> ease up already, God. Why me? But there's a reminder in the New Testament that the trials we face are common to humanity. That chances are the very trial that seems very specific to us right now is a trial that someone else has faced, maybe in our family, in our community, in our neighborhood. And in that sense, we're meant to take a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of hope, a little bit of comfort for one another as we support each other in these trials. These trials are common, says James. It's not if, it's when, right? Second thing about trials, and this is hard. Trials are useful. Trials are useful. We're told this again and again in the New Testament. Trials are not meaningless. They are useful to us. One of the ways they're useful is, was found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. They're useful because they help us to comfort others that are going through trials. I remember uh, just last year, there was a teenage girl who stood in this pulpit at her mom's funeral service. And I've told this story to some others before. And as she shared, she decided to share this exact verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. The praise be to God who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That was her verse. She already understood it. She got the assignment. <laughs> she understood that even in her grief, she knew that God was equipping her as a teenager to care for others who would lose their mothers. What an amazing maturity that we can see in our teens and learn from them because these trials are useful. They, they grow us up in a hurry, don't they? And then we can use that in order to comfort others. But James also says they're useful in another sense. Trials are useful to grow us to maturity in our faith. That's what he says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be mature and complete, needing nothing. That's some interesting stuff in there. Let it grow. Let it grow. Uh, let us grow in these times of trial. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament, isn't it? Trials build character. We could go verse after verse. We could look at John. We could look at Peter. We could look at Paul. We could look at Jesus. And they all tell us the same thing, that trials develop our character. And so when we pray, God, give me patience, be very careful with prayers like that. Because <laughs> God will probably give us a circumstance in which we need to learn patience. He doesn't zap us with patience. When we say, God, give us grace, he doesn't zap us with grace. He'll provide a circumstance where we need to rely on His grace and extend grace to others. And so we have to be careful what we ask for because God will sometimes lead us into these trials that build character. Trials, though, are inevitable, but growth is a choice. Growing in times of trials is a choice. Suffering, my mom loves to make all kinds of kind of pithy short statements. And as she gets a little bit older, she says more of them more often. 
And the, the thing, I, I kind of laugh about it, but they're actually true. And as I get older, I realize the truth of these pithy statements my mom gives. And this is one that she says a lot. Suffering either makes us bitter or better. And it's true. Uh, we have a choice when we face our trials. How do we respond in these trials? So we have an opportunity to grow, but it's not a given. We have to yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. So trials are common, they're useful. But here's the good news. They're also temporary. They're temporary. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. We're in the midst of a trial, we think this is never going to end. People saying, COVID, how, how is this going to end? How are we going to get out of this kind of trial? Uh, but the Bible tells us they're temporary. In fact, Paul says this. He calls trials our light and momentary affliction. <laughs> I laugh at that because Paul was constantly in trouble. Shipwreck and hunger. He was stoned almost to death. He was in prison. He suffered all kinds of things. And he calls it light and momentary affliction. How could he do that? Because he had a sense of eternity. So in the light of eternity, the short dash that we get to live on this earth, trials are seen as being temporary. This is another statement from my mom. This too shall pass. You've heard that statement? I often follow it up with, yeah, like a kidney stone. At least you get that. My mom hasn't got that one yet. But uh, it'll pass. Maybe like a kidney stone, but it'll pass. Trials are light and momentary when we consider all of eternity. That's why James says this. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul says, I, I don't consider this present suffering even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. That's perspective for us, right? It doesn't minimize or, or, or marginalize the suffering that we're facing. The gospel never does that. It acknowledges it, but it wants to view it in light of eternity. So trials are common, trials are useful, trials are temporary. And I think we all get that. I think we can rally around those things, even though some of that uh, language is difficult when we're in the midst of a trial. It's tough, but this is our shared experience, and we're called to support one another in it. Isaiah calls it the furnace of affliction. Some of us are in the middle of the furnace of affliction right now, but the goal is not to destroy us. The goal is to purify us and make us stronger to refine our faith. So I get all that. But here's what I don't fully understand. You ready for it? It's his opening statement. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? That's just crazy. Consider it joy? Yay, another trial. Can't wait. God sent me another one. I just got rid of that one, and I'm ready for the next trial. Are we meant to be happy? And considering the next trial, it seems like James, James has just taken things a little too far. Consider it pure joy. He should have said, consider it common, or consider it necessary, or consider it useful, or consider it temporary when you face various trials. But he didn't say that. He said, um, consider it pure joy. How do we understand that? How do we grasp that? What does it mean to consider it joy when we face different trials? The month of February is African Heritage Month, or sometimes called Black History Month. And so I've been reading 
some of the stories of those from African heritage who have had a massive impact on our lives, on our culture, and on our church. And one of the stories I was reading recently was from Solomon Northup. Do some of you recognize that name, perhaps? You might in a minute. Solomon Northup was a free-born African-American from New York. He was born around 1807. But he was actually kidnapped. He was drugged and then kidnapped and then sold into slavery. He was a free-born man, but he was actually sold into slavery for 12 years. And there's a gentleman by the name of Samuel Bass who was actually a Canadian. He was working on the plantation where Solomon was, was uh, enslaved. And he actually worked to help to get Solomon Northup's freedom. In the first year of his freedom, uh, Northup wrote and published a memoir called 12 Years a Slave. Now, do you recognize it, perhaps? This is not an endorsement for a movie, but maybe read his memoir instead. Because in his memoir, he talks about the suffering he faced. He talks about what it meant for his faith to actually have been enslaved for these 12 years. This is what he says. At such times, the heart of man turns instinctively toward his maker. In prosperity, and whenever there is nothing to injure or make him afraid, he remembers him not, and is ready to defy him. But place the man in the midst of dangers, cut him off from human aid, and let the grave open before him, then it is in the time of tribulation that the scoffer and unbelieving man turns to God for help, feeling there is no other hope or refuge or safety, save in God's protecting arm. That's the key. Times of suffering, times of trial are meant to chase us to God, meant to turn us to God. We don't take joy in the trial. We're not happy that we're facing the desert, but we rejoice in God. That's where our joy comes from, not from the trial, not from the circumstances around us, but these trials give us a chance to rejoice in God to rejoice in his faithfulness, to rejoice in his comfort, to rejoice in his plan, to rejoice in his salvation and his presence even while we struggle with the trial. It is perfectly legitimate to shed tears during a trial. We are not meant to be happy, clappy bappies all the time. That's not our calling. I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus, right on the, on the edge of the tomb of his, one of his great friends, even though Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead, what did Jesus do? He wept, right? What did Jesus do in the garden when he was facing the greatest trial of his life, the greatest testing of his life? He wept. He wept so hard that he bled. It's perfectly understandable to feel the trials as a heavy burden and to weep. But we rejoice not in the trial itself, but in God who understands our weakness. This is what it says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice. Peter has just explained the whole path of salvation. It says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We rejoice in God and his salvation. We need to get to the point where we say, like the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 3, he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fall, and the fields yield no food, 
the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He's not taking joy in all the circumstances around him. That's tough. That's hard. He's weeping because of that. But he directs his attention to God. And in that sense, we rejoice in him. So the wisdom of James is that faith is not a safe set of ideals reserved for the classroom or for textbooks or inside the safe walls of the church. That's not what faith is for. Faith is real time. Faith is real world trust in God when the stuff of life hits the fan. That's what faith is for. Nothing grows us up so quickly, quite like a strong trial, right? But it's in these trials that we also get a taste of the suffering of Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for James, who was known as the brother of our Lord, and for his writing, and for the fact that by your sovereign will and your providence that you have preserved it for us, and we can read it today. We need to hear these words, even though some of them are tough. Because for many of us over this time and in this season, we're facing various kinds of trials. And Father, it's hard. It's difficult. We shed tears and we cry out, How long, O Lord? Father, we pray that you would turn our attention to you, to know that you are good, to know that you are with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, and to know in the midst of all this that as we are trained by you, we can also serve others who are facing these common trials. Father, help us to support one another during these days. Help us to love one another with the love that Christ has shown to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.